Well, good evening, and uh, thank all of you for joining us. I'm uh, John Allison. I'm the new uh, president of Cato, and I know we have a number of supporters here today, and we thank you very much for your support. I'm looking forward to this uh, discussion this evening. We're fortunate to have uh, Tucker Carlson, who I know many of you know, who uh, is a senior editor for the Daily Caller that's growing rapidly and is also on Fox News and other media outlets has written um, uh, in many different publications toward the world. And, but his most famous, two most famous things, he's a, he's a senior scholar at Cato, and he also was uh, in 2006 on Dancing with the Stars on ABC. So that's... <laughs> And then I'm really pleased to have uh, John Mackey here. John and I have had numerous conversations over the years. Uh, John is, a, in my view, a business hero. He's a business hero in two contexts. One, he created a great business, which is a very, very difficult thing to do in a globally competitive environment. And he's a true entrepreneur in that regard, in that he had a, an idea that he turned into reality. And, that, and that's a huge achievement. And then secondly, John is a real inspiration in that he's a business person that defends capitalism in principle. Now, we can debate about certain aspects of his defense, but very few business people defend capitalism in principle as the kind of system that produces a better outcome when people focus on certain kinds of, of, of fundamental beliefs. John is a person that has a great sense of purpose and passion uh, and he's been willing to defend the principles that underlie free society. So I think he's a, a business hero in that context, too. So it's a real pleasure to have him here. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Well, I, I agree with that introduction. I'm going to um, give you a series of softballs and suck up for the next 35 or 40 minutes and then throw it open uh, uh -oh. to the audience. <laughs> cynical, cynical. Actually, this is totally sincere. Um, I, I agree with that introduction. So you, you've said that you grew up, just a little background on you, um, thinking of yourself as what you call the democratic socialist, you no longer are. Can you just briefly describe the transition from one place to your present views? Uh, well, I mean, like uh, most people that went to school at a major university in the United States in the early to mid-70s, so I went to the University of Texas, and uh, I mean, that was just you just, it's like a fish in the water. It's just the milieu that you're part of, and you, it's just what you've come to believe uh, because everybody else believes it. And when they said business was greedy and selfish and exploited people and uh, that we needed to create a society where uh, that you served the public good uh, as your motivation, and that's what government did, and that's what nonprofits did. Well, business just sought profits, uh, and it was selfish. Um, I believe that. But when I went out and tried to, as an entrepreneur, and create my own business, I mean, I had so much idealism when I started out regarding that. I'm a very idealistic person. First thing was that, uh, uh, well, I'm going to, certainly I'm going to have low prices. Got to do that. Going to pay a lot better than everybody else, too. And, uh, uh, and, so, and, and so you just go down the line, and, I, and then you have to, you're in reality. And then business is, uh, uh, wakes people up from their, their dreams to a certain extent. So when you have to meet a payroll, and we managed to lose half our money in our very first year. We, we had $45,000 when we started out, and we lost $23,000 in the first year. My girlfriend and I, who started it with me, we were only making $200 a month each, and we were living in the store on the third floor. So uh, we were probably heading towards bankruptcy, and... and uh, 
I was just floundering around looking for alternative answers. I was reading, I had no business background, I never took any business classes in school, so I was just reading one book after another trying to well, What did you take, excuse me, what did you take in school? I took philosophy, I took religion, I took world literature, history, anthropology, humanities. Yep. Uh, uh, and, uh, but I quickly got an education because I'm a, I'm a uh, I read hundreds of books on business. At the same time I began, somehow I stumbled into reading uh, uh, Hayek and, and von Mises and Milton Friedman and, and Murray Rothbard and, and I read Jude Wanoski and George Gilder and then I discovered Lazy Fair books and I pretty much read everything in the catalog over a few, a few year period. So, uh, and I realized, God, this makes sense. This is the way the world really works. This other stuff's nonsense. Did you have a Sherpa for this or did you just wind up in, in it? No, that's where my $200 a month was going, to books. I had, you know, I lived in the store, so I had food and I had a bed. So what else did I need but books? Uh, so I didn't have a Sherpa. Huh. So at what point in your progression did you decide you were out of step with a lot of the people in your, in your business, in the natural foods business? Gosh, really in the first, the first year of the business, I mean, I, I, that was when the, I, I said this kind of awakening occurred. And I began to read all these books. But certainly by, by the end of the second year, I had completely changed my political philosophy. Oh. So how did you go about putting that philosophy, your new philosophy, into practice as a, as a businessman? Well, uh, the economic philosophy just gave me uh, context for, uh, can I remember when I read von Mises' Human Action? You know, not an easy read, but it was so brilliant that I was reading, I thought, this guy's a genius. And I just began to see how the market processes work. I could, I could picture it in my mind and see the flow of it. And I saw that how we were doing our business and I could fit it within that larger context. And in fact, it just gave me uh, a context to see the world, to understand the world and how it works. Huh. And, and I, I wouldn't say that those, I think von Mises once said that when he was proposing marriage to his wife, I think he was like 60 when he proposed, and he, he said, you know, I'm a man who writes about money, but I'm never going to make any. And uh, not a, I, 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 I vowed I would never make a proposal in a similar way to a woman. I, <laughs> but uh, so I wasn't so much learning about business from those guys as I was learning economics and the way the larger world worked. It was the business books and my own mistakes in business. I made so many of them, but I'm a quick learner. And uh, so the second year, we made $5,000. And then in the third year, we relocated the store, enlarged it, and it took off. And that's when we changed the name to Whole Foods Market, and we've been on a roll ever since. So how do your business practices differ from those of your peers in this business and other businesses who don't share your political views? You mean in terms of my more libertarian values yeah. or just in terms of my general philosophy about business? No, in how do your libertarian values specifically affect your decisions as a businessman? I mean, because I understand, uh, I understand the principles of the, that lead to prosperity in society. I understand the importance of property rights. I understand how regulation can harm business. I understand how high tax rates uh, don't work for the good of society. I understand how it's business that's uplifted humanity. We've got... Uh, uh, some of the statistics we did in our book that we didn't in the research, 
I mean, 200 years ago, 85% of the people alive on the planet Earth lived on less than $1 a day. 85%. Now it's down to 16%. 200 years ago, illiteracy rates across the planet were over 90%. Today, they're down to 14%. 200 years ago, the average lifespan was 30. Today, it's 68. It's uh, 78 in the United States and 80 in Japan. So business and capitalism is what lifted the world up. And I see that economic freedom is the key to it all. The United States was like the shining light under this whole planet for 100 plus years. <clears throat> and even as little as just 13 years ago in, in, the, in 2000, the economic freedom index, we were still ranked number three behind uh, Singapore or Hong Kong and Singapore. Now we fall into number 18. And as our economic freedom declines, so does our prosperity. I mean, we've got unemployment rates of 7.9%. Higher than that, if you count the people who've given up looking. We've got, um, uh, the, in the last decade, the, the income per capita has actually dropped in America for 10 years. And that's, we're in decline. And we're in decline because our economic freedom is being uh, systematically stripped. Why do you suppose it is? Is it a series of bad leaders who lack foresight, or is it that the public is concerned about economic, doesn't want economic freedom? It's because the, the way I see it is the critics of business and capitalism dominate the narrative. They put a narrative out there that business is fundamentally greedy and selfish and exploitative. If you saw the documentary called The Corporation, it portrayed corporations as fundamentally sociopaths. If you live in a society where corporations are sociopaths, you need a really big government to control them. Otherwise, these, these guys are running amok, wrecking everything and cheating people and dumping their toxins in rivers and, and uh, ripping off their workers and defrauding the consumers. And, and it's just a horrible bunch of uh, sociopaths running around. You got Sociopaths, you got to do something about. Sure. So, so the critics dominate the narrative. And then I... I the people that defend capitalism make a huge mistake. They oftentimes will concede the moral high ground. And they'll say, you're right. Business is about is selfish and it's greedy, but because of Adam Smith's invisible hand, that all gets channeled for the, uh, for the collective good. Now, of course, the invisible hand is, a, is an amazing insight into the way the world works. But trying to defend capitalism on the, strictly on the basis of uh, the invisible hand and prosperity cre uh, created while conceding the moral high ground to the opponents and the enemies is a huge strategic mistake. We've got to reframe, we've got to recapture the narrative. And that's what our book tries to do. And yet we see that. Living in Washington, we see business leaders, CEOs come to this city all the, every day and in effect beg the federal government for more regulation mm -hmm. and not make the case, an affirmative case in defense. Crony capitalism. So why is that? Because they don't have a larger perspective of business and they're strictly looking out for their own short-term interest of their enterprise. As long as, as government's gotten so powerful, I mean, spending 40% of the GDP of the country now, and a lot of that they don't have, they're just borrowing it or printing it. Uh, you end up with a lot of businesses colluding with the government, and you end up with, and that's part of the reason the narrative's been, uh, people don't support capitalism to the same degree they did, because they mistake crony capitalism for free enterprise capitalism. They associate business people with corruption. And I mean, just look at the most recent bill that passed um, when they uh, we had the whole fiscal cliff deal. You saw payoffs to well-connected political organizations like Hollywood, um, 
like alternative energy and uh, uh, you've, you've got special deals being cut all the time and business is going to pursue that if, if, if the government's giving away money most people are going to line up to get it. So you're obviously run a huge business, a major employer. Have you, what's been your interaction with this administration? Have you been called for your view on things? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> um, you know, um, almost all my interactions with business, I mean with government, are negative. I mean, whether it be the FTC trying to break up mergers or local health departments uh, uh, setting rules for us, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, I mean, government has a legitimate role to play. I think the big debate we have to have in the 21st century is A, how to limit government, and B, what's the appropriate things government should be doing. We, we need to, uh, but I think the, the reason why government has gotten so big is because people have lost confidence in private sector. And I think they've lost confidence because business is no longer not only defending the free market system or free enterprise system, but they, they've lost their ethical foundation. Right. I would argue that when capitalism got started, we, we had a, the general milieu was uh, Judeo-Christian ethics. But as we move to a more secular society, that basis has been, has been uh, uh, undermined. And, or we've moved to a more secular society and as a result, things like the Marxist criticism or, or social Darwinism uh, has, has, an, has undermined the, the ethical foundation of business. As, all, as we say in the book, Adam Smith's book that he thought was his most important work was not The Wealth of Nations, but The Theory of Moral Sentiments, where he put forth a view of human nature that was not strictly self-interested, but cared about what other people thought. And unfortunately, uh, we didn't integrate those two philosophies together. And so we didn't need to 200 years ago because we had Judeo-Christian ethics that underpinned the society. Now that we've begun to move away from that, capitalism needs to find a new ethical foundation or it's just gonna be seen as a bunch of sociopaths running around trying to line their pockets. Correctly, right. I don't think it'll be seen correctly because business unfortunately is judged by its worst actors. It's the only part, part of society that is, in my opinion. We don't judge doctors. If somebody takes out the wrong kidney, all doctors are not stained by that. Or if uh, uh, even politicians, there's a lot of corruption there, but we don't tend to judge all politicians by the bad work of a few. But business, unfortunately, is stained by the Enrons, the Worldcoms, the Bernie Madoffs, and people generalize that to be what all businesses are like. I mean, look at the Gallup's approval rating for big business now is down to 19% approval rating. That means 81% don't approve of big business. And it's very hard to create a free society when business is held in such low esteem. Consider Congress's approval rating is at 17%. So it's, business is only two points higher. And chlamydia is at 25. No, it's I true. know. I mean, and AIDS is all the way up to 38. <laughs> no, that's right. So you've argued uh, publicly in favor of caps on CEO pay, or at least criticized outsized. No, I'm not argued for caps on. I'm not you argued criticized for Criticized these very large CEO compensation sure, packages. Why? Well, because I see what happens in corporations and, and I, I, here's how the game is played um, as a CEO of a large public company. 
Corporate boards of directors hire compensation consultants. Compensation consultants uh, come in and they tell you what everybody else is getting paid. And then, of course, your board wants to make sure that their guy is in the top quintile. Well, everybody can't be in the top quintile. And so you have this continued inflation. Why, because it suggests a successful company for bragging rights? or No, mathematically. You, no, no, but why does the board... There's five layers and all of them can't be in the No, no, top. I get it, but why would the board want their guy to be among the highest paid? Well, because they think their guys uh, should be paid at least better than their competitors if he's doing as good or better job. And, and, but that's not just merely the problem. Also, you have this problem where if the board um, takes care of management, management tends not to resist the board's compensation either. So you've got... Uh, 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 you've got kind of, and, that, and it creates an inflationary cycle where, I mean, you can just see how much it's gone up, far greater than, than the wealth that, cre that, that corporations are creating. So management is taking a bigger and bigger chunk. That's why shareholder activism, where I disagree with certain elements of it, this is one area where I happen to think they're right on the mark. Hmm. So what can be done about it? Cor the, the shareholders have got, they've got to be the true owners of the corporation. They've got to, and we've, We've divorced ownership from control in America. I mean, we've got pension funds and mutual funds. They own the public corporations for the most part, and yet they take a very passive role in terms of actual govern governorship of the of the uh, of the corporation, and that's a real problem, in my opinion. So I think I think mutual funds and those guys need to be more actively involved in, in their in their companies. Of course, most of them are such short-term holders; they don't have any incentive to. So you end up uh, just having boards that basically police themselves, and, uh, and then you get management and board colluding, and, the, and the shareholders lose. It creates bad publicity for corporations, and it undermines the trust that people have in uh, the business sector. So what have, you, what have you all done about it at Whole Foods? What's your, the formula? Well, um, we said, first of all, we have transparency on pay, so you can see what everybody else gets paid. Um, secondly, we have set a salary cap, because I think that you have to have, thinking about what the right compensation for executives is, you've got to pay attention to what the market pays, obviously. You've got to pay attention to what we call external equity. And then you've got to pay attention to internal equity. What is the basic fairness perceived within the organization? If your spread gets to be too great, you undermine the solidarity that the organization has because it's not seen as fair and just that somebody is making so much more, and tens of millions of dollars were, uh, compared to other people. So at Whole Foods, we do cap it at 19 times. That's not a magic number. It started out at eight, went to 11, then went to 14. It's been 19 for six years. It'll go up again as we, as we need to pay attention to external equity. But it does set a contract. It does set a limitation on it. And I think that's been healthy, for at least for our company. And so I don't think the government should set salary caps, but I think in your own self-management, your own self-discipline, it's good for an organization to do it. What do free market managers do about labor unions? What do they do about them? Yeah. Well, of course, I mean, labor unions uh, certainly have a right to exist, uh, and people have a right to select union representation if they want it. Uh, if, you're, if you're creating a... The way we describe labor unions in the book is that they're like a competitor is to your organization. They compete for the hearts and minds of your employees. And if you're doing a really good job and you're helping people to flourish 
and people feel happy in the workplace, they won't pick a union. They pick unions because they're dissatisfied. They think they're getting screwed. In yeah. some cases, they are getting screwed. So the unions are a sense. They compete from the hearts and minds. And, and uh, so you should strive to be a great company to work for, and your organization will never select union representation. So what do you do specifically? I mean, how do you convince your employees they're better off without a union than they are with one? We don't convince them they're better off without <clears throat> a union. We don't do anti-union training in our company. We just... Uh, but how do you make them happy enough that they don't choose to go in a union? Well, you're, you're asking for our entire uh, philosophy. Yes, yes, I am. And uh, <laughs> I can't give that to you. Hoping couple, to open my own chain of grocery stores. A couple of sound bites. I'd, I'd welcome the competition. Um, but uh, the main thing is, is that we really value our team members. We, we have a very simple formula for success, which also points out the importance of stakeholders. First of all, that we try to hire the very best people we can find, like any organization does make sure they're well-trained. And then we create an, a, a more decentralized, empowered organization. We're, we're organi everybody's organized into teams. The teams are self-managing. They, they, you have to get voted onto a team. It requires a two-thirds vote. We let our team members vote on their benefits. We have exactly the same benefit. Uh, if you're a cashier at Whole Foods, you get the same benefits I get. So there's no, we just don't have that. We're more egalitarian structure. And we allow, people to try their ideas out and try their experiments out. But the most important thing is we don't manage our company with fear. Hmm. People, that's, when people say it feels different in your stores, what they're really saying is, you know, people don't seem to be afraid working there because we don't, we don't manage through fear. We, we really try to manage with love. And people, uh, uh, they respond to that. So our philosophy of business is, is that if the team members are well-trained and they're happy in their jobs, then they're going to take better care of the customers. So happy team members results in happy customers, which results in happy investors. So one of the key principles of the book, what we call stakeholder integration, is recognizing that all the stakeholders are interdependent. They're part of a system, a business system. So manage the system. Manage it in such a way that you're creating value for all of your stakeholders, at least all the ones that are voluntarily exchanging. You do that, you seek these win-win solutions instead of trade-offs, and you end up optimizing the whole system, which also happily creates more value for your investors as well. Do you think you fire fewer people in companies that you compete with, do you think? I don't know. I've never done a survey on that. We don't, uh, we don't routinely fire people unless they're doing egregious things, but you, you have to maintain a high accountability as well. Otherwise, people will take advantage of that. So uh, we do maintain a high degree of accountability, but it's mostly the discipline of it comes from peer pressure because of the way our compensation system works. The teams are rewarded as a group, and their bonuses are paid out to the teams. So the teams police, self-police. Um, I'll give you an example. Let's say you work, uh, where are we, DC? Uh, let's say you worked in our P Street store I'm afraid I couldn't hire you. I'm afraid, uh, uh, worried about sexual harassment lawsuits there. But let's say that uh, uh, we did hire you. That's a, a bad joke. No, I'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> you kidding? Well, let's say we hired you, and you went to work for the produce team. Well, the produce team, we negotiate once a year a labor budget for that team. Let's say that labor budget's 10%. That would mean that 10% of all the sales that produce team produces are paid out to the team in terms of their wages. Now let's say that team produces a labor cost of only 8%. Well, the differential between the 10 and the 8 is paid out to the team uh, 
equally based on hours worked. So they get the differential. That simple system changes everything. Hmm. It changes it because now the team is trying to increase sales. Now the team wants to get their labor hours down. Now the team doesn't want slackers or free riders to take advantage of everybody else. It's because the higher the productivity of the team, the higher the sales of the team, the more efficiently they work, the more everybody gets paid. And so we don't have to be command and control uh, commanding everybody. The team, the, the peer pressure, the self-discipline of the team corrects for that. So it's, it's, uh, it, it, it changes the entire nature of the game because we, come, we become self-managing, self-policing, rather than a boss telling everybody what to do. Oh, how long have you had that? And who came up with that? I did, 30 years ago. Oh. How many of your employees do you think agree with your political philosophy? Who the heck knows? <laughs> I ask because, I, I mean, I gotta say, as someone who agrees Probably with you. Probably nobody does. Yeah, I, mean, I, I bet that's true. Exactly, um, my yeah. political philosophy, I, I, you know, even my wife doesn't agree with my entire political philosophy. <laughs> I just, I drive into Whole Foods, I, I shop at Whole Foods on Wisconsin, I really like it, but I go in there and every Prius has an Obama sticker. I mean, every one. I mean, I, you know, maybe it's just a, no, I mean, I'm not criticizing anybody and, I, and perhaps it's an anomaly. What's on your Prius? I don't have, it. well, the Obama stickers come affixed from the factory uh, on Prius. My point is, uh, you're shopping in our store, so everybody can't be for, oh, oh perhaps you voted for Obama too. I, I didn't. No, okay. it, it turns so, out I didn't. Um, but I get a real political vibe. In, at least in my Whole Foods. And I live in the District of Columbia, maybe that's why. There you go. So is there, do you think I, I could, if I went to the Whole, what, Whole Foods in Waco, see, there'd be like gun racks? Did you, see the, did you see the voting percentage in the district? 94%. 94%. Yep. Okay, so. Most liberal city in America. You're answering your own question for me. So I'm the first one who's drawn a connection between Whole Food customers and a certain political persuasion. It depends no. upon what no. part no. of the country no. you're at. No, honestly, like I was just in Kansas City uh, uh, doing a book signing last week, and, and everybody was coming up telling me they, they love my politics, and please don't keep speaking. Well, I love your politics. I'm not criticizing you in any way. But, no, but right. I'm saying those are Whole Foods Market customers, right. too. It's just that uh, uh, New York, Washington, L.A., San Francisco are big cities, and they, they, tend, to, they tend to skew pretty far to the left, hmm. as you know. So have you, I guess this is all preparatory to my next obvious question, which is, have you paid any price for being public about your views, which are at odds with those, at least of the Wisconsin no, the, Avenue clientele? The worst thing is that I haven't, I mean, it's hard for the team members. You know, when, when I used the other F word uh, recently. Which one's that? I, I vowed never to use that word ever Spell again. F-A-S-C. Oh, oh, right, right, yeah. right, yeah. Um, I'm not even going to use that in Scrabble uh, going forward. The Mussolini word, I guess is what, yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, well, you know, we got a big blowback at our stores. <clears throat> we had lots of threats and boycotts, and people said they'll never shop there again. And, and, uh, but that's mostly hard on our team members because, you know, when people come in and say, we hate your CEO and we're never going to shop here again, it's really hard on the team members. They don't yeah. know to do about it we it's uh and the, and the real purpose of that of course is to try to intimidate me and to shut up uh, i oftentimes say that people are in favor of a of a vibrant democracy until uh until people speak up and disagree with uh 
people, then they're not so much in favor of democracy any longer or uh, vital. I think, I think business people need to speak up if we're going to keep a free society. And as I pointed out, we've already fallen to number 18. If business won't speak up for capitalism, you know, if we're just left with organizations like Cato doing it, uh, we're not going to hold on to our republic. What will happen? We'll move towards uh, like Europe and we'll end up, uh, God save us, we might end up with, uh, you know, demagogues as, as the economy continues to slide downwards. Uh, you'll end up with guys like Hugo Chavez and you'll end up with class warfare and I mean, it won't be good. Hmm. So what should the political parties do about it? For example, if you were giving advice to the Republican Party, which is really the only at this point viable alternative to the ruling party, what would your advice be? I don't understand why the Republicans will not come out and defend capitalism. I don't understand it. They don't know how to do it. They, they like deer in a headlight. Uh, when they start talking about selfishness and greed, they don't know how to respond to it, and uh, they start uh, apologizing. I, I, I thought, you know, I thought Romney just did a very bad job of defending uh, uh, defending business and capitalism, and they got him defined early as a plutocrat, and he never escaped it. And uh, uh, maybe I don't know. Maybe he didn't really believe in capitalism, or, or he didn't know how to articulate it. Heck, part of the reason I, we wrote the book was to try to give some arguments for people to go out and defend this better. Have you noticed a difference in people from certain businesses? Are people from, say, the grocery business or traditionally small margin, profit margin businesses different in their political outlook from, say, hedge fund managers? Or is that just a... I don't know what the politics of hedge fund managers are, except uh, don't change carried interest to, uh, from a capital gain. I, I don't know if they... What have... do you think of that, by the way? <laughs> I mean, you're talking to a guy who f favors really low, much lower taxes. Right. Uh, and... So, I will say that I'm a, I'm a believer in, in, in a flat tax. I would just get one simple flat tax, make it on all forms of income, uh, and just apply it throughout the society. It'd be so simple, but uh, of course then special interests can't get carve-outs and politicians don't get as big of donations that way. But the left that argues would, that would be, quote, regressive in that it would take a bigger chunk of poor people's income. It wouldn't take a, well, yeah, I mean, if you don't think poor people ought to pay any taxes, then it's regressive. If, if, if you believe that everybody should contribute, not contribute, I hate that word, that everybody should help pay for the government, uh, then if, if somebody's making a million dollars and they pay 12% flat tax, then they're going to pay $120,000. If somebody's making... $20,000, then they'd be paying uh, uh, a little over $2,000, wherever that math quite, or $2,400. Uh, so that is, uh, uh, the richer is paying a lot more, I mean, substantially more, and arguably not receiving any additional benefits from the government. So I think. I would like to see as low a flat tax as possible. Well, what about the argument that the president makes, in fact, made yesterday, right before the Super Bowl, that rich people have a unique or certainly special obligation to pay a greater proportion because they've been blessed by the fruits of America? And they do, and they do pay, they pay a lot more. Yep. But a higher percentage. 
They have a moral obligation. Obviously, I disagree. What do you think the effects of a radically progressive tax code are? Every time you ratchet it up a little bit, then you create incentives for people to, uh, to I mean, it's the great, the Phil Mickelson story is very illuminating. Because not only is the guy going to move from California, but he's going to try to, he might even leave the country. Uh, but of course, they get you when you're going out of the country as well. But um, you set up in disincentives for people to, uh, uh, to do additional work. I mean, I get paid a lot of money to do speeches now, for example. Uh, not, to, not today, of course, but... Um, I'm getting paid a lot. I know. Sorry, you're not. I know. <laughs> I've given all my money to you. But, uh, but the point is, is that at my marginal rate, the incentive to do the speech now is lessened because it's like, okay, well, uh, hmm, I'm only going keep, to keep X amount. Do I really want to do the talk? Nah, not really. I'd rather stay home. Yeah. On the margin, I give up certain speaking opportunities. And I think that happens all the way through the economy. So as you raise that rate, on the margin, someone says, you know, it's just not worth it. And so the overall productivity of the, of the society declines. Uh, you don't have as economically vibrant a society. It's the Laffer curve, and uh, it's fundamentally true. So you've painted a picture in which a small group of misguided people, or maybe malintentioned people, is taking away our freedom and kind of running the country into the ground. At what point does the average person have a right or maybe obligation to really resist that? Well, most people don't care. I mean, most people are not aware of it. Most people, they're not paying attention to this stuff. Right. Uh, um, and that's unfortunate uh, because they're the, they're the ones that are going to be harmed the most in the long term. It's, they're the ones that are going to be unemployed. They're the ones that get more and more dependent on government. So um, it's a difficult situation, but that's where we find ourselves. So you've seen other points in American history where Ordinary citizens look up and say, this is a really deeply unfair situation. The people in power don't have the best interests of their subjects in mind. And we're going to be disobedient in our response. Could you imagine a scenario where you become disobedient? I'm not going to go on the record and talk about all the ways I'm already disobedient. <laughs> <laughs> I think what ends up happening, it, look, it's just essential to me that we get uh, to me, capitalism is the, the greatest social system ever created by humanity. When people ask me what my politics are, I'm kind of now, because libertarians got so much baggage associated with it. The prostitution stuff and all that? No, it's not the problem. It's just, it's now got a reputation for being heartless and, and uh, a bunch of, you know, it's got a bad reputation. So I just say I'm just a radical capitalist. I'm a radical capitalist. I really believe in capitalism. It's what's lifted humanity up. I believe in liberty, I believe in freedom, and to try not to get into a, a box that uh, people can then stop listening to me. Right. But unless we get the biz business community and to begin to defend uh, capitalism in, an, in a thoughtful, intelligent way, we're going to continue to go down this path. And it'll be slowly, it's a ratchet, it's a ratchet, it's a ratchet. And it doesn't tend to back down. And I mean, when I think about it now historically, the United States was already going down a decline path before we elected Reagan. 
And Reagan, Reagan rolled back taxes. He rolled back regulation. And he was a flawed president in many ways. I don't hold him up as a perfect one, just simply the best one of my lifetime. And the United States turned it back for about 25 years. And now we've gone the other way, and the ratchet started again. And we're going we're to continue to decline unless we get uh, some type of powerful, visionary leadership. Obviously, it'll have to come from the Republican side that can articulate uh, uh, a vision of prosperity for America based on, uh, on returning to the essence of what capitalism is, and we can begin to roll back the ratchet. Um, Does it feel like that decline's been pretty quick all of a sudden? No, because, well, I mean, from my perspective, uh, after the Reagan Revolution, think about it, who we get elected president? We got H.W. Bush, and he clearly didn't believe in the principles of Reagan. Then we had two terms of Clinton, and then we had uh, George uh, W. Bush for two terms, and he clearly didn't believe in it either. And so the Republicans we've elected since Reagan didn't really believe in capitalism. They didn't believe in free markets. And so, but they're, they're held up as supposedly the champions of it. And so they've, they prove to be big spenders and big taxers. And uh, well, I don't want to say big taxer to, to W, but um, uh, certainly he didn't promote economic freedom from my perspective. And, and he increased government spending immensely. Before Obama came along, he was the biggest spender that we've ever had as a president. Of course, Obama makes him look like a cheapskate now. Who impresses you? as you survey the landscape politically? Um, I mean, there's some that I'm more enthusiastic about than others, but I mean, uh, none of them are perfect. And of course not. I'm not asking for an endorsement, but when you just, you're, I mean, you presumably you're around, you travel a lot, you're a famous guy, you run into people. Is there anyone you think, that's kind of an impressive guy? I'm impressed with uh, Marco Rubio's intelligence and his passion. and. Uh, he articulates, when I've heard him speak, he oftentimes articulates a lot of free market messages to it. I think Rand Paul is uh, uh, the closest we have to being a, a libertarian that's a, in a powerful position. Uh, so those two guys stand What did you think of Ron Paul? Well, I mean, I, I put his uh, sign up in my yard. <laughs> that answers that question, I guess. <laughs> But these things are relative. I mean, I, 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 there's no perfect candidate for me, but, yeah. uh, and there are many things about his beliefs that I had a little trouble with, but in, particularly some stuff he did when he was younger. But uh, yeah. in general, I, I support his, his views in a lot of ways. I gave money as well. Good for you. So before I open up to the audience, which I'll do very quickly, you said a minute ago that, that we need to define government's role. Right. That's the big common life. So what is, can you just give me the, the quick precis on that? What is, what, what should government be doing? Well, in my perspective, Tucker, there's three legs to the stool in the good society. The private sector business <clears throat> is by far the most important leg because it creates the prosperity for the other two legs. If you have a weak private sector, eventually the other two legs get weak too. They crumble, uh, which is what we're, what's happening actually. Second leg, you need, a, you need a vital nonprofit sector in society because business should tackle whatever things it can do that can make money doing it. If it can't make money doing it, then it's really not in that, uh, shouldn't be in the business sector. And that's where the nonprofit sector comes in. It can take on social problems and social challenges that the business can't find solutions for. 
Because remember, the nonprofit sector is voluntary. It's not coercive like government. The nonprofit sector is based on voluntary exchange as well between donors and, hey, Cato's a nonprofit, and I support Cato, Whole Foods supports Cato, but uh, nobody forces us to. We do so because we support their goals and their aims. Uh, so I see the nonprofit sector as tackling a lot of the social problems that uh, business can't successfully do. I see government's role, because it's fundamentally coercive and fundamentally bureaucratic, as basically defining the rules. And I, I, I'm not an anarcho-capitalist. I do believe in the minimal state, which is about 10% of what our current state is, or, or even less than that. But with a reduced military role, but we need, we need the government to protect us from external invaders. We need, we need police. I don't think the whole private defense thing completely makes logical sense when you think it through. Uh, we need some final court system that the government does. And they need to set some, they're like the umpire, they set some rules and regulations that lead towards markets working more efficiently. So... Um, what about government subsidizing money losing windmill farms? Oh, I think that's a grand idea. <laughs> no, I mean, government should not be, it shouldn't be subsidizing anything. Really, it's taking, remember, all the taxes it collects, it does, it does that coercively. Ultimately, guns stand behind the tax uh, stuff, or they threaten you with prison, or they just take your bank, take your money away from you. So it's based on coercion, and so no, they shouldn't be subsidizing anything. All right, I'm going to open it up uh, to the audience. Do we have any questions? Mr. Mackey? Yes, ma'am. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you. Um, Carla Howell with the Libertarian Party. Uh, my question is, the scenario you described between um, board members and management in corporations, why that colluding, if you will, why doesn't the market self-correct that? And are there any government interventions that you know of or that you speculate of that may be encouraging this to go on? Well, first of all, the market is partly correcting it right now. You have shareholder activism going on that's trying to do things like get a say on pay and trying to have the shareholders sign off on the compensation packages for executives. And, and so there is partly it is being corrected by the market. But the reason we have market failure here is primarily because the, um, the way it works now, possibly partly because of the way taxes work for capital gains, that... Um, People don't, these institutional investors, they don't hold stock for very long. They don't invest, they speculate. It's a casino. They invest and they, and they, they, get, they buy hot stocks and they trade it when it cools off. And, and uh, one of my favorite conversations is when I go out and I talk to the investment community, the first thing all these guys tell me when they first meet them is, well, we want you to know we're a long-term holder. I said, really, that's really, I'm glad to hear that. We really like long-term holders. What's your turnover ratio in your firm? I mean, how often do you turn over your, it's like I routinely hear 100%. That means they don't hold, on average, their stocks for even one year. And they think of themselves as long-term holders. So um, if you're not going to hold a stock for a long term, you're just betting on short-term price movements of the stock, why should you care anything about corporate governance? So we've also set it up so that, that mutual funds are not even allowed to have, say, a representative on the board. I would like to see the institutional investors 
have incentives to hold their stock longer and be encouraged instead of, instead of discouraged to actually get involved in government. I think you, when you divorce ownership and control, you've made a huge mistake. So we have to get the owners of American corporations, which are these institutional investors, to take corporate governance seriously and get involved on the, on the board level. Otherwise, you just have this uh, collusion that I'm talking about. Yes, sir. I'm Barry Wood, an economics journalist. I'd like to ask you about immigration. I noticed I that- I thought you said there were no media in here. Uh, no, it's salted <laughs> with media. Everyone who works in the New York Times, please raise your hand. <laughs> In my Whole Foods, which is just up the road from uh, Tucker's, uh, there's a lot of um, immigrants. I, I want to know what you think about um, uh, enforcement of the laws. I'm thinking of Reagan and, and employer sanctions on illegal immigrants. Also, on free trade and subsidies. You mentioned you don't think government should have any subsidies. Um, what about agriculture? If you, talk, if you talk to farmers here, they'll say we've got the lowest food prices in the world, mainly because of the structure that government and agriculture have. have. And, second, and finally, in, in this trade issue, you mentioned Marco Rubio. You know, He's I a big supporter. Time. You're, 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 you're okay. hitting me with a bunch of them. Why don't we take <laughs> well, them one at a time? I thought sugar. Back. What's the most important question you want to have me answer before you give up the mic? Because you asked me a bunch of questions. Which one do you want me to answer before we pass the mic? I guess I'm most interested in subsidies, particularly, say, free trade and food products. The government has, in my opinion, uh, let's, I think one of the most harmful things the government, that America does to the developing world is subsidizing our farmers and then making it difficult for, and then we export at subsidized prices, which harms the the livelihood of these and a lot of these developing countries, and more importantly, makes it difficult for them to export into America. When this is what they have to trade, they're farmers. This is what they have to trade, and uh, the fact that we're subsidizing that, uh, it, it, we're we're exporting poverty while we make our own farmers richer. I don't think that leads not only to a good society. I think it leads to a less prosperous, less just world. So. Um, I think one of the most caring things we can do is stop subsidizing our farmers, let them compete on the world agricultural markets. And they have lots of productivity, lots of high-tech equipment. They, they, it, they can compete. They don't need to be subsidized by the government. And most of those subsidies go to the, I mean, something like 90% of the subsidies go to basically corporate farms. It's a form of corporate welfare. We shouldn't do it. Is that Fred? <laughs> Former president, now uh, director, right, of CEI. Um, the following on on that question, I think we've, uh, most of us certainly in this audience are despair about farm subsidies that have been going on for decades and every five years they seem to get worse and worse because as you point out, they've got corporate interests who back them and you've got lots of ideological interests who back them. The morality of capitalism, which your book certainly talks about, is it adequate to not get involved in those rent-seeking subsidies, or is there some case where the business community and its allies in the intellectual community need to form alliances to roll back government, to liberate some of the economic terrain that has been captured by collectivism? We've gone up 130 years, we've been losing ground. 
we can't be on defense forever, can we? Oh, that's, a, that's a great idea. I support it. Uh, and it's, it's the old rule that the, the benefits are concentrated in the few, and so that creates a strong incentive for the few to go and do the rent-seeking, whereas the majority don't have, it takes a lot of time and energy to try to resist that. And it's hard to gather that, uh, 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 that energy up to resist it. So that's the, the, the main strategy should therefore to be lessen the power of government to do those things in the first place. And get, corporations get blamed for uh, rent seeking and yet they would only be, the only reason they rent seek is because there's rent to be gained. And if we didn't have that, then they wouldn't be seeking it. And as government becomes more and more powerful and as our regulatory state grows, the incentives for business to try to game the system becomes practically irresistible. I'm very proud of Whole Foods not doing that. Fortunately, we're just grocers, so there, we're, uh, we don't have uh, obvious uh, incentives to seek out from government, at least none that I'm aware of. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Um, We're not talking about my book at all. We're just talking about politics. I'm a grocer. Everybody yeah. in this room will buy your book, I That's promise right. you. Um, I also go to my Whole Foods probably five times a week, um, a lot. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I go to the grocery store a lot. <laughs> and I know, I get to know all the cashiers. I know the manager. Um, what, my question to you is, how do you pick the charities that um, you give to through, you know, the there's several different, I think, throughout the year, and they last quite a long time. In stores pick them. The stores pick them? We're decentralized and empowered. That means wow. the stores pick them. And is there an incentive? Pro like, how does that feed into your philosophy in terms of the, the charity things, the, where they ask the customers for actual money at the time that they're checking out? You're, Those are the ones I'm have, talking about. I think about it this way. Um, we have our own foundations that the Whole Planet Foundation, which does yeah. microcredit loans, and That's we have right. our Whole Kids Foundation, which works on salad bar grants and garden grants to schools. Doesn't you might get hit up from that for your spare change from time to time. We do prosperity campaigns for each of those uh, uh, foundations once a year. So 12 weeks of the year, the global foundations are being hit up. You're being hit up for that. But then the stores, are the one they pick all the rest of the nonprofits that we do business with. We we actually we give away um, our stated goal is five percent of our net profits, but we actually give closer to ten percent in any one year. Um, but we try to do it strategically. I don't think I think philanthropy should be approached strategically. You should look for the win-win-win-win strategies in your philanthropy. So I do believe the, the company should benefit from its philanthropy, and I think it does that by like. For example, at the store level, we hold what we call 5% days. So let's say, um, let's say we're holding a 5% day for Cato. Uh, and uh, that would mean that that store would give 5% of their gross sales that day to Cato. But if Cato was selected, we would want Cato to uh, partner with us on that. We'd want them to contact their, their members and, and that are living in the D.C. area, for example, and encourage them to come shop that day because 5% of the revenues would go to Cato. To me, that's a win-win strategy. 
Whole Foods is benefiting because it's helping market our business. The nonprofit is benefiting because we're making a substantial donation on their, on their behalf. If it's, a, if it's a nonprofit that many of our team members are enthusiastic about, then they're benefiting as well because they get enthusiastic about the, the efforts, so do many of our customers. I don't know if Cato would qualify in those last two, but... Uh, Other countries, we also have a substantial microcredit program in the United States as well. We're in lots of cities. We're up in New York, we're in New Orleans. In fact, I think we've got 16 uh, cities targeted for microcredit loan support in the U.S. All right, we got time for one more. Yes, ma'am. comes under the title of cognitive dissonance, and I think that pretty much describes probably many of the people, at least around here, who go to Whole Foods. If you, your book is an, obviously an effort to reach people who are probably thinking similar ways, but who have been repelled by the explanations of that point of view from other people. I know that the head of Cato, um, gave, uh, he did an introduction to a recent newsletter in which he described how to talk about libertarian ideals. But the fact is that if I, I live in the district, if I talk to this, about, about this with people, uh, they don't want to hear it. They love shopping at Whole Foods, but they don't want to hear it. There is an enormous barrier. So I guess my question, question to is? you is, the question is, um, other than someone in your position who goes around and gives speeches, what would an ordinary person, how do, how, how do ordinary people describe the sort of um, ideals that you're talking about, not with reference to fancy philosophers or anything else? I mean, it's simple. That's why we've written the book. The book is targeted primarily to business people. It's not targeted to, most people are not interested in reading about business. Business people... I know because I've done, I've signed thousands of books, and and um, most of the ones that I've signed are from uh, other business people, and they they for the most part love the book, and they we paint business for what it truly is, heroic, and business is the greatest value creator in the world, and business people don't like being accused of being uh, horrible people who are uh, selfish and greedy and exploitative and and uh, business. People are fundamentally, um, they're conscious that it's A, hard to do business, and B, they're well-intentioned, and C, they're creating value for other people. They just haven't known how to articulate it because business people are biz, it's interesting to call them business people, busy people. They're doers. They're not necessarily thinkers. So we're providing them with hopefully an intellectual framework as well as arguments they can make. Mostly we want them to start feeling good about themselves. And no, if you're always accused of these things, you, you, begin, to, uh, you begin to act that way. The, 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 the way business is described actually becomes almost self-fulfilling. So business is going to have to, you start this revolution where it needs to start, which is with business people waking up to who they are, the good that they're doing in the world, and begin to push back against the critics. I'm trying to set that example myself. I'm taking a lot of bullets for doing it. But um, um, I think that's what needs to happen. And, and I don't think, uh, uh, as much as I admire 
think tanks like Cato, or the Reason Foundation, et cetera, uh, they, you know, they, they mostly turn out policy papers and they're trying to influence the legislature, the, the legislature, right? They're trying to come up with privatized social security or flat tax rates and things like that, all very important role to play. But that's not gonna resonate with most business people. Most business people need to see how uh, how they are in the world and how they could be and how they should be. And we've outlined a strategy that will lead to greater business success while also resulting in a, a different way of thinking about business in the larger society. And business people have to go off the defensive and they need to begin to articulate a philosophy of the fundamental goodness of business. If we don't, I tell you, we're going to continue to lose our freedom and uh, as we lose that, we're going to lose our prosperity. And uh, uh, I hate to think I'm of the generation that uh, it was, and it's true, my generation's in charge as America starts going down the toilet. Uh, I hate to, I, I, I couldn't rest myself knowing I didn't give it my very best shot. So that's really why I wrote the book. I'm fundamentally an idealist. And uh, I love our country, and uh, I would like it to prosper, not just for now, but uh, for the next forever. Uh, as long as possible. John Mackey, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet you.